Trillions of dollars to address the needs of working people in the areas of education, childcare, health, housing, and more are on the line as a crucial struggle unfolds in Congress and in the streets. We'll also discuss the Biden administration's brutal treatment of thousands of Haitian refugees seeking asylum in Texas, the latest on the pandemic as COVID spreads virtually unchecked in large parts of the country, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's September 27th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And sign up for our September patrons-only seminar with Brian, which will be held this Wednesday, September 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. Brian will be speaking about tactics and strategies for building an anti-war, social justice, and socialist movement in the United States. We'll take questions for him beforehand and live as we go. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, we've got a huge week this week. There were tons of actions in the street all weekend, a day of action to stop the eviction moratorium from ending, and a huge week in Congress this week where hopefully, and as people fight for it, hopefully we'll see some really incredible policies come through. Right. A big, big week for the Biden White House. Maybe they are at the crossroads. Maybe they are at the edge of the abyss, depending on how things go in Congress. Of course, from our point of view, the United States, U.S. capitalism is an imperialist system. This is an imperialist government. It's an imperialist White House and an imperial Congress. But nonetheless, there are bills in front of Congress that may and would have considerable impact on the lives of working class families, millions of working class families, millions of families who can barely make ends meet, millions of people who have lost their job. So many people can't find childcare. We lost 126,000 childcare workers who were working at the time of the pandemic who are not now working. All of these people who are in duress would benefit greatly if Congress acts. And of course, Congress has, you know, the Democrats control the House, the Democrats control the Senate, the Democrats control the White House, the Democrats can do whatever the Democrats want to do, but it remains to be seen what the Democrats will do, if anything. Esther, one of the issues is how this legislative package is being described by the media, and it's not being challenged really by the Democrats. You know, I'm talking about what's always referred to as the $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan, or what Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin said is too costly, and that's why they might torpedo the whole thing. 
the way it's described, you know, you never use this kind of language as if things are so expensive when it comes, say, to the military budget. I mean, it jumps out at you about how bad the messaging is on this. Absolutely. I've been following corporate media coverage of this huge effort to really just invest in American families and invest in the working people of this country and a combination of poor corporate media coverage. And I think the Democrats themselves being very poor at just getting their message across is just adding to adding to this week that is just so important for people and it's adding to the confusion this week. So most coverage refers to the $1 trillion so-called compromise bill from Republicans and conservative Democrats as the infrastructure bill, right? And so this bill will specifically address bridges, roads, broadband, and the larger bill that you were just mentioning that had been called like the American Families Plan or American Jobs Plan, this has all been merged into the budget for this year, part of what they call the reconciliation budget package. And so that's what they keep calling it. They keep calling it the one bill, the infrastructure bill. And instead of calling this larger package, the human infrastructure bill, they just call it the reconciliation package. And they keep slapping this $3.5 trillion price tag on it. And so most people don't even know what is in the bill such as universal pre-kindergarten for all three and four-year-olds, a free community college, clean energy requirements for utilities, lower prescription drug prices, expanded Medicare benefits, and a pathway to citizenship. So since it's not really described in that way, people don't know what's in the bill. The other thing that happens is that this human infrastructure bill is totaled over 10 years. So that's how you get this $3.5 trillion as opposed to $350 billion per year. And as we discussed in our editorial meeting, they never described the defense budget as a $10 trillion budget over 10 years. And we know that's probably a, even be a conservative figure. Yeah. So. The other thing that is happening with the bill is the way that the cost is described. So tax increases on corporations and the 1% are paying for much of the legislation. And so it's not really like piling up $3.5 trillion in debt. And these new proposed laws, all those measures I mentioned, they're very popular with the public. And that's why corporate lobbyists are investing so heavily in advertising to counter pieces of the bill. And I should say, you know, just covering this, the Senate parliamentarian has already ruled that the immigration reform aspect of the bill cannot be put into this human infrastructure bill. But still, you know, people are still fighting for it to stay there. And, you know, we can talk more about all the ads that are being run by these dark money groups to counter this very popular legislation. Yeah, you never hear them say, and the Senate will now be discussing the $10 trillion <laughs> military budget. You know, again, because if you took the almost $1 trillion a year, which is what the real amount is, not just DOD, Department of Defense spending, but also in the Energy Department and elsewhere, it's about a trillion dollars. If they describe the budget for death and destruction as the $10 trillion budget to kill people, to maintain military bases overseas, blah, blah, blah. 
it would be perceived completely differently. But here, the $3.5 trillion, blah, blah, blah. No, it's a minor package, but it would make a big difference in people's lives. And talking about how small measures can make a big difference, Walter, the cancelTherents.org, PSL, other groups came together over the weekend. There were 61 actions, I believe, in more than 55 cities demanding that the rent that is debt, the back rent that is owed to landlords, which totals about $65, $67 billion, about 8% of the defense budget, that that money be forgiven from the point of view of the tenants. And that if the government wants to, it can step in and pay the rent, pay the back rent. In other words, end the rent debt. Anyway, big actions all around the country. Again, it wouldn't take much for Congress to do it, but the number of people who would be impacted is huge. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an extremely important struggle and very impressive actions taking place in every region of the country, in big cities and in small towns. We've got a clip from a demonstration that took place in Providence, Rhode Island. I just want to start off by listening to that because it lays out the basic context, the basic reason that these protesters were taking to the streets. Banks got bailed out. We got sold out. Peace. My name is Satya. I am here part of the National Day of Action to demand cancellation of rent debts. This action is taking place over 50 cities across the United States. Working people around the U.S. now are strapped with a rent burden because of our failed, failed system. The pandemic brought an economic crisis not seen before. Nationwide record number of people lost their jobs and livelihoods, and people have not been able to pay their rent. Yeah, you know, just picking up on that chant, banks got bailed out, we got sold out. You mentioned, Brian, that it would take less than 10% of the military budget to wipe out the rent debt to effectively cancel the rents in that sense. Another way to look at it is that it would take about 1.5% of the $4.5 trillion that the US government and the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve used to bail out the biggest banks and corporations when the pandemic began and the economy was being shut down and was in total freefall. So this is a small ask relative to the amount of money, the resources available to the federal government, but they're not allocating it. And so as a consequence, 11 million people are facing eviction in the middle of a pandemic. There had been eviction moratoriums that were temporary issued by the CDC, but the Supreme Court ridiculously, cruelly, unjustly got rid of that eviction moratorium. But Congress can act. I think this was a key theme of the demonstrations that took place across the country last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, was that there's no excuses. Congress has the ability, and in fact, Congress could do this without a single Republican vote, to pass an indefinite nationwide moratorium on evictions. They absolutely have that authority. It wouldn't be challenged in court. It would hold up under legal scrutiny. And there is still a chance, and there is an effort underway to include such a nationwide eviction moratorium in this social spending package that's being debated by Congress right now. So I think this is extremely important. You know, just to go back to that conversation about messaging and how the Democrats are talking about this and how the media is talking about this, 
it's a question I ask myself, why is this being promoted so poorly to the public? Like these measures that Congress are considering are so popular. I mean, who doesn't want universal pre-K? Who doesn't want kids to be able to go to community college for free? Who doesn't think it would be a good idea to give working class parents a $300 a month check so that their kids don't have to grow up in poverty? I mean, these are very popular things. Why is it being messaged so poorly? Now, of course, there's incompetence. I would definitely describe the Democratic Party overall as an incompetent organization. But there's also the question of the internal dynamics within the Democratic Party, where the Biden administration is calling for this. The vast majority, really, of Democratic Party politicians in Congress are on board with this because they know that it's a necessary, essential concession even to the working class after all these years of struggle, growing consciousness about inequality. But there are many right-wing Democrats, too, who are opposed to this. Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are probably the most notorious, but there are others as well. And it seems to be based on a strategy to not antagonize them, to not offend these right-wing Democrats who are trying to keep kids living in poverty, who are trying to keep parents, you know, struggling to afford childcare, or who are trying to prevent, you know, even the most basic measures from being taken to save the environment, to save the climate from catastrophe. Yeah. Walter, let me jump in and ask you, let's talk about what's actually going to happen this week. Now, the liberals in Congress, the Progressive Caucus and some of the liberals, they have made the argument that both sides of the bill had to be passed. They weren't going to pass and support the infrastructure, so-called jobs bill, if the other far-reaching social programs were not included. So now it's all been pushed into one Bill, let's just talk about the dynamics of what's likely to happen this week, what the pressures are, how this whole thing could fail, like 100% fail, and also the issue of the potential government shutdown. Of course, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, has now begun the process of putting into motion the necessary steps and if the government is in fact shut down, which would happen if the debt ceiling is not raised. Explain it real quick to people. We have a lot of stories, but I really want people to understand what is going to happen in Congress this week. We don't want people who are activists simply to be activists. They need to understand what's going on in Congress. And by the way, the activists who were out in the streets on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they were also, I know they were in the streets at least in Atlanta on Monday, they were blocking or attempting to block an eviction from taking place. So the demonstrations are one tactic, but actually part of this movement to cancel the rents is to physically prevent, if need be, the evictions of families from their homes. Oh, well, that's very important. I mean, just to touch on that really quickly. Yeah, I mean, the same people who organized the cancel the rents demonstration in Atlanta, the next day were right back at it. They were helping a family resist a completely illegal eviction from their landlord. So this is absolutely an ongoing movement. I think this tactic of eviction defense is something that's going to be popping up more and more all across the country in response to these cruel evictions, life-threatening evictions. But right, so there are four major things on Congress's plate right now. One is the $500 billion infrastructure bill, physical infrastructure bill, that was worked out as a consequence of a compromise between a section of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. The right-wing Democrats really like this bill because it's very limited. It's probably going to be pretty helpful for corporations in terms of subsidies. They would like to pass this $500 billion bill and not any of the other stuff. 
the more progressive Democrats in Congress are saying, we will not vote in favor of this infrastructure bill unless the $3.5 trillion social spending package is also passed, is simultaneously passed. And if they don't vote for it, the Democrats need their votes. In other words, if they don't vote for it, the thing fails. Yeah, absolutely. And the same is true on the other side of the equation. If the right-wing Democrats don't fall in line with the measure that's you know, actually going to be very, very helpful to working class people, the budget bill, the social spending budget bill, then that could be blocked too. So this is the nature of the struggle right now. It's really between people who want these basic social rights to be passed, which are mainly in that budget bill referred to in the media as the budget reconciliation bill, and the right-wing Democrats who don't want that to pass and would prefer to instead pass this insufficient $500 billion infrastructure plan. Now, on top of that, there are two other things. There's the government shutdown that will take place on Friday, unless there's something called a continuing resolution that's passed. A continuing resolution essentially means that the last budget that was passed is continued, is extended for a certain amount of time. The new deadline that people are talking about most frequently now is sometime in early December. So they would need to pass that. And there's also the issue of the debt ceiling, the legal limit at which the U.S. government is forced to stop borrowing money, which can only be increased by act of Congress. And that is set to take place sometime between mid-October and mid-November. So all four of these urgent matters need to be decided on by Congress very, very soon, some of them this week. Let me jump in again, Walter. So the debt ceiling, though, is just BS. I mean, the debt ceiling is a BS tactic. And I want you, if you don't mind, explaining to people how this is just a fraud and created by the right wing. Yeah, absolutely. So raising the debt ceiling, the legal limit of how much money the US government can borrow is a completely routine thing. It wasn't political for years and years, decades and decades. It was a completely routine, almost technical thing that Congress did basically automatically. But then the right wing figured out that this could be a lever that they use to force the adoption of austerity measures, meaning the cutting of funding to social programs that poor and working class people rely on. So, you know, they'll say, well, spending is out of control, the debt is out of control. And so we won't allow you to raise the debt ceiling unless you cut X, Y, and Z programs or cut this amount of money from these social programs that working class people depend on. So it's complete nonsense. It's a fake manufactured crisis. And it's used by the right wing and has been increasingly used by the right wing in recent years, basically since the Tea Party phenomenon, as a mechanism to force the adoption of these austerity measures. And it's just to add something real quick. It's just a technical matter, like you said. You might think, based on the news coverage, that the debt ceiling issue, like voting on that, is somehow tied to these incredible measures in the budget bill. They're not tied at all. The debt ceiling is for things that were passed beforehand, like things that have already been passed by Congress for paying for those things, for paying for the running of our country. So, you know, this outrage about, you know, whether we should raise this or not is completely, like you said, Ryan, it's complete BS. The debt ceiling was raised 74 times from March 1962 to May 2011. Okay. I mean, it's routine. Go ahead, Walter. Yeah. And just speaking of other things that are just complete 
inventions of politicians. You know, there's this issue of the Senate parliamentarian, which is a very obscure position, but is going to be increasingly important in these coming days. Because what will happen and what has happened with the immigration reform component of the budget, like Esther said, is that the parliamentarian will be asked to rule whether or not these measures have a substantial effect on the U.S. government's budget. Because if they do, they're allowed to be included in this bill that can pass with a simple majority. But if they're not, if the parliamentarian says no, then theoretically they would need to be passed with 60 votes rather than 50% plus one because of this undemocratic filibuster. Now, the Democrats could get rid of the filibuster whenever they wanted. They wouldn't need any Republican votes for that. But another thing to keep in mind is that the parliamentarian's rulings are not binding. They are not binding. They're purely advisory. And so the Senate can vote to accept or reject the ruling of the parliamentarian. So if all the Democrats in the Senate got together and said, well, we think that this is permissible to include in the budget. We think that immigration is permissible to include in the budget. We disagree with you, Senate parliamentarian. That would be the end of it. It would remain in the bill. There's no legal authority behind the parliamentarian. Which brings us back, in my opinion, to the marketing of this bill. Why aren't people out there trumpeting these incredible ideas and concepts and policies that are, you know, that are not novel, but providing education for free for people, providing people the basics they need to live and survive? Why isn't that on every single Sunday show? Why isn't that on every single nightly news? Why aren't Democrats out there trumpeting this? Walter mentioned the whole issue of immigration. And I should say that there were people out on the National Mall last week talking about that. One of the vice presidents from Unite Here, which represents the Union for Hospitality Workers, he was saying, you know, fire the parliamentarian, you know, get rid of the filibuster, do what you have to do, do your job. You know, we elected you to do your job. So this is a very serious matter in the Latinx community, in the entire immigrant community. But anyway, there's a group called Numbers USA, and they are paying to run this ad that they started maybe about four years ago, but they're re-airing it now, talking about chain migration. And so they're saying that, okay, if you allow amnesty or you allow this path to citizenship for one person recommended in this legislation, that will lead to, you know, 10 more people, 20 more people coming because it will lead to so-called chain migration. They'll bring their spouse and their children and their children will bring their children and their grandparents and their aunts. And it's not true, but that's just an example of the type of fake ads running. The other ad that you see running targets the provisions in the legislation to expand and reform Medicare. And that's the healthcare program for people over 65. And one set of ads partially targets the effort to have Medicare set the drug prices in this country, which we know are sky high. So the advocacy group Protect Our Care wrote in a recent report that the pharmaceutical industry is financing at least eight ad campaigns attacking the plan to allow Medicare to negotiate these high drug prices. One of these campaigns by the American Action Network funded by drug companies, is funneling $5 million into these ads that are all over the place, basically lying about the impact of this legislation that everyone knows will lower these outrageous drug prices. In their literature, the AMA claims that this budget resolution is, quote, a socialist prescription drug plan that would limit patients' access to life-saving medications, end quote. So, you know, 
this is where they're going with this. So all of those who supported or followed the Bernie Sanders campaign, they know that this was a big part of his agenda. And, you know, Joe Biden signed on to this approach partially to get some of the progressive vote that, you know, he did not have and that was not supporting him. Sanders estimates he's chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, but he estimates that this will save the federal government around $450 billion over the next decade and save individual patients thousands of dollars on prescription medications. And when the other thing about messaging and marketing, Nicole, is that you can rely on commentators in the so-called, you know, center or democratic media like CNN, like even Jake Tapper and Aaron Burnett on CNN to not only blame any impasse this week on progressives. And, you know, when they say progressives, they say it in a really contemptuous tone, but they continue to call these right-wing Democrats like Manchin and Cinema moderates when, you know, there's nothing moderate about getting in the way of this type of legislation that can help people. All right, let's go on. We have so many other stories. We'll hit some of them briefly, but we really need to cover them because a number of them are very, very important. We want the audience to be able to stay with us in this kind of continuous process where we update the news, assess it, analyze it, and try to figure out what's coming next. For the last couple of weeks, Esther, many of the dominant images in the media were from the border where you had U.S. Border Patrol on horseback attacking Haitian immigrants, whipping them. I mean, the images were unbelievable. Anyway, what's the latest? Well, the latest is that I kind of want to make a segue from what we were just talking about and included in that human infrastructure bill are, as we mentioned, are some measures for immigration reform, you know, allowing more undocumented people to receive green cards. So of course the far right is mobilizing against that and any effort for a pathway to citizenship for 11 million undocumented people, you know, because of racism and because they see more black and brown people in the U.S. as more democratic voters. And you can hear commentators like Tucker Carlson on Fox are constantly making this point, you know, appealing to like a white nationalism as if white people are like the indigenous people of North America. And, you know, these same commentators, you know, welcome like white immigrants like Melania as in Trump, but do not welcome like a Milagros from the Dominican Republic. So as I mentioned on the mall last week, you know, they were reacting to this Senate parliamentarian, whether it was a preliminary ruling or the actual ruling, that a pathway to citizenship could not be included in the human infrastructure bill. And this whole discussion that people were having coincided with the crisis of Haitian asylum seekers in Del Rio, Texas, the makeshift encampment in Del Rio, where some say up to 30,000 people had sought refuge, has now been cleared. According to news reports, at least 2,000 Haitians were deported back to Haiti, including reportedly dozens of children who were born in, like, say, Brazil or Chile. And they're not citizens of Haiti, but they were deported there. Another 8,000 returned to Mexico, where they're also living in these makeshift encampments that they created. And after a massive outcry over those same images that you described, Brian, up to 12,000 Haitians are being allowed to stay in the U.S. and apply for asylum. 
So many of these people are staying with their families or in shelters or with sponsors. NBC reported Sunday that another 5,000 people remain in the custody of border control. And it's not clear if these thousands of people could also be deported or also allowed to apply for asylum or both. But, you know, just covering the people who were down on the mall last week and looking at these images and talking to reporters who are actually down in Texas, it just really underscored, you know, how broken the U.S. immigration system is, how Trump and we could call him his white supremacist and cheap Stephen Miller, you know, broke the system even further, creating this buildup of migrants and asylum seekers in Mexico and throughout Central and South America, and how the Biden administration is still implementing many of those same rules, such as the so-called Rule 42, allowing deportations during the COVID pandemic. And these rules are touted by far-right politicians who, on the other hand, have really stoked the pandemic in the spread of the pandemic and people already living here by failing to fund testing and contact tracing and opposing mask mandates and vaccine mandates. But they want to call the arriving people here a threat to the COVID conditions here. So the other thing that you see happening in terms of the latest is that the far right media is really picking apart news accounts of abuse of their migrants, basically saying that it didn't happen or it wasn't as bad as it was reported. And, you know, whether it was a whip in the hands of the border patrol agents or whether it was the reins of the horse, you know, when it doesn't really matter as long as you have something hard that you're lashing out at people who are on the ground and you're on horseback. And already these Border Patrol agents are being defended as if, you know, they were just doing their job and, you know, kind of protecting the U.S. against this advancing horde of migrants. Yeah, the border police are notorious. Anybody who has any even slight familiarity with the way the border police treat immigrants, there's no question about the sadistic nature of that treatment. I want to recommend, we're going to go on to another story, but I want to really recommend for our audience an article that's in The New Yorker. It's authored by Edwidge Danticat. The headline is, The U.S.'s Long History of Mistreating Haitian Migrants, subtitled The Current Tragedy at the Border, is just the latest fallout from the U.S. failed policy towards Haiti. I'm going to read a couple sentences and then we'll go on, but I really want people to check this article out. It's in The New Yorker. This past week, while looking at the heart-wrenching images of Haitian migrants packed by the thousands under the Del Rio International Bridge in Texas, or crossing at shallow points of the Rio Grande, or being chased by Border Patrol agents on horseback, or landing back in Haiti for the first time in years, I thought of some of my family's own migration nightmares. I remembered my mother telling me how, while living in New York on an expired tourist visa, in the 1970s, she was arrested during an immigration raid at a garment factory. She was pregnant at that time with one of my younger brothers. Spotting and cramping and held in a crowded cell, she thought she had miscarried until she was finally seen by a doctor a few days later. I remembered my 81-year-old uncle Joseph dying in U.S. immigration custody in Miami in 2004 after fleeing Port-au-Prince's Bel Air neighborhood in the wake of a bloody United Nations Forces operation. He was detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement after requesting asylum at the Miami International Airport. 
His medications were taken away, and after his health deteriorated, he was brought to a local hospital's prison ward where he died shackled to a bed. Anyway, an amazingly important article in The New Yorker authored by Edwidge Danticott. Nicole, let's go on to COVID. Delta variant is rampaging, and there's a lot of important numbers that are coming out. Of course, we know there's constant propaganda, mainly coming from the right wing, not exclusively, coming from the right wing, really to throw sand in people's eyes. Some of that propaganda is malleable. So when some of their earlier arguments are refuted, they sort of like chameleons change over and adopt some new arguments. But let's go over the numbers. This is a New York Times article called, the title is COVID Gets Redder. Yeah, Brian, we're back up as a country to 2,000 deaths per day every single day right now on the 14-day average from COVID, specifically from COVID. And yeah, I wanted to read just a couple sentences from that article, COVID Gets Redder. The political divide over vaccinations is so large that almost every reliably blue state now has a higher vaccination rate than almost every reliably red state. This was a particularly stunning statistic to me. In counties where Donald Trump received at least 70% of the vote, 70, 70% of the vote, the virus has killed about 47 out of every 100,000 people since the end of June. In counties where Trump won less than 32% of the vote, the number is about 10 out of 100,000. So in counties where Trump had a lot of support, 47 out of every 100,000 people have died. And in counties where Trump didn't have as much support, the number is 10 out of 100,000, 47 versus 10. Really telling to me. And it's telling, too, because some of the other dynamics of who's being vaccinated and who's not are also changing. Some of the people who wanted to wait and see, some of the people you know who are more politically independent, Black people nationwide and Latino people nationwide are all starting to get higher and higher rates of vaccination, people who were hesitant at first, who wanted to see how things go. And the main divide now is really this political divide. That's the main divide. And it's, I think, very clearly owing to some of what you were just talking about, Brian, some of the really, really disgusting and and really insidious misinformation that's out there that's popularized in so many different parts of the internet that has gone viral in so many different parts of the internet that really does present a strong looking case until you look under the hood a little bit, until you read a little bit more about it. But a lot of people don't do that or don't have time to do that. Or like you say, the waters are muddied enough that you're not sure and you don't want to take your health at risk. But actually, by not getting vaccinated, that's where your health is at risk. Let me just ask you then. So, Nicole, so when COVID started, we were talking, you know, a year or a year and a half ago, like Elmhurst, Queens was the epicenter of the epicenter. New York was the epicenter. And you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles and the cities, the urban areas that were largely so-called blue areas. Right. They're more progressive or more Democratic Party. Yeah. That's where COVID was rampaging. I know because I was in New York. I have family in New York. Elmhurst was the epicenter. I have family in Elmhurst. Then I would go to Western New York up by Rochester, Syracuse, the Finger Lakes, that area. And COVID was not present at all. And I don't know what it is now in Western New York, but my point is that it was in very much started in urban areas and now is not really located in the Northeast or West Coast urban areas. It's there, but the thing has shifted. And the only thing that's changed really 
Well, it's not the only thing, but perhaps the main thing is where people are getting vaccinated. The main thing that's changed exactly is vaccination. And what you just outlined, I think, shows that so clearly because those big cities were where COVID spread very quickly because people live so close together. It's much harder to segregate from each other. You know, you're necessarily when you're in a grocery store, you're getting, you know, the basic needs of life. You're going to be around more people than where you are in the rural areas. Plus, you were inside in the winter, all that. You were inside in the winter. People are flying in and out of cities. Also, even if the majority of people aren't, some people are. And so, um, you know, it made sense that things were spreading there first. But those are the same areas, those cities that are more predominantly progressive or liberal or, you know, in the left. And those are where vaccination campaigns have worked, helping so much to stem the huge tide, especially in this Delta variant that's so incredibly infectious. You know, there's so many arguments online that are cherry picking data in a really, really disgusting and manipulative way where the majority of papers, the majority of scientists, the majority of medical professionals, the vast majority are very clear on the fact that vaccines are the main thing that you know, are helping us through this crisis right now. Also, there are treatments out there, too, that doctors, you know, increasingly are using over the last year or so as the medical profession was able to sort of get a grip on what this was and how to treat it. But they're expensive. And the facts are, too, that we live in a capitalist society that doesn't have enough hospital beds, that doesn't have enough doctors, that doesn't have enough care. And people don't have access to that care, you know, even if there were enough hospital beds and enough doctors. So the vaccine is this, you know, incredible item, this incredible device that we can use for everyone, that everyone can safely access, that can actually really stem this tide. And so the people that are really pushing this, you know, alternate view, this really, like I said, cherry picking information. And like you said, Brian, you know, even changing the facts as they're debunked, they're really doing a lot of harm to society. One more thing I wanted to add in this article, COVID Gets Redder, It talks about a piece that appeared in Breitbart recently, the right-wing website called Breitbart that former Trump advisor Steve Bannon used to run. This appeared in a post arguing that Democrats want Republicans to die of COVID. So that's why the Democrats are pushing the vaccine so hard. And I'm going to read a little bit from the Breitbart piece because it's so wild. Quote, Right now, a countless number of Trump supporters believe they are owning the left by refusing to take a life-saving vaccine. In a country where elections are decided on razor-thin margins, does it not benefit one side if their opponents simply drop dead? Unquote. This is John Nolte. I mean, this is the most disgusting thing I can think of. It's just so, so backward. It's so backward. Do they mean that by taking the vaccine, you're more likely to die? No, they mean that because Democrats should know that Republicans want to do the opposite of what Democrats say, the Democrats are pushing the vaccine hard so that Republicans won't take it. One of the important points is that this epidemic, this pandemic is global. I mean, it's a pandemic. And we've talked in the past, and Esther and I talked last week about how people in UK, for instance, 65% vaccination rates. In the United States, 53%. Everybody could be vaccinated, but a number of people don't want to be vaccinated. In Africa, throughout Africa, the number of people who are vaccinated is 3%. In Latin America, where COVID took a huge toll, and it was so hard to get vaccines, more vaccines are coming online now in Latin America. But I'm looking at another article, Nicole, COVID's hidden toll, 1.1 million children lost a parent in the past year, 
And most of these kids who lost their mom or their dad, or in some cases both, a lot of them, a large number of them are in Latin America. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, and it's based off a study in The Lancet that was just published from March 2020 to April 2021, so a year and a month, an estimated, like you said, 1.1 million children lost a primary caregiver, specifically to COVID. So it's just yet another layer that I'm sure many people hadn't thought about of how horrendous this pandemic has been. And most of the affected countries are in Latin America. And Latin America accounts for a third of coronavirus deaths, even though they're only 8% of the global population. Peru, which has been the hardest hit by this measure, there's an estimated 10.2 children per 1,000 children who lost a primary caregiver. 10 out of 1,000 lost a primary caregiver. Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia are also in the top five. I mean, and this is all connected to the U.S.'s vaccine use as well. If the U.S. were to be vaccinated at higher levels, you know, everywhere in the globe, there would be fewer bodies for the virus to multiply and to move on in and to create worse and worse variants. Yeah. And the other thing is that the U.S. needs to lift the patent. I mean, right now, right now, and for months, the U.S. could say, we don't care about the profit profits of Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson. We're going to make the recipe available to the whole world, and the whole world can start producing their vaccines so that the whole world can be vaccinated. But because in a capitalist system, in this capitalist system, the primacy is on profit and maximizing profit and protecting intellectual property rights, so-called, um, then these patents are still held by these profit-making corporations. I was at a meeting where the new Venezuelan foreign minister spoke at the People's Forum in New York City at the end of last week, and the foreign minister talked about what it meant for Venezuela, which is trying to deal with COVID, for the imperialists to try to do everything to prevent Venezuela from getting vaccines but that they are starting to make progress. They're talking to Cuba. They're working with China. Cuba intends to vaccinate the entire population by mid-November, including children. And so I think that the struggle against imperialism is partly a struggle for access to the vaccine. And for socialists in the United States or in Europe, part of our demand should be to absolutely lift the patent, and share the recipe for the vaccine with everyone around the world. Absolutely. And that ties into the sanctions that the U.S. has on a lot of other places as well, because some of those places can't get access to some of the materials they would even need to make the vaccine in the first place. All of these things are completely interconnected. But I want people to really think about that. 1.1 million children who are parentless because of COVID, who are being taken care of along with you know, five or six other siblings by their aunt or one grandparent who's elderly or, you know, in many cases, their older siblings are now the new caretakers. I mean, this is a real horrendous situation. 1.1 million children who lost a parent. Let's go on to another story. Angela Merkel's reign has come to an end. She was the leader of the Christian Democratic Union Party in Germany, Walter. She's been there for a long time. The Christian Democrats are a right center party. Let's talk about the election. It appears to be, well, perhaps the Social Democrats have won now. I'm not sure, but they don't have enough of a vote. They would absolutely, in order to form a new government, have to make it a coalition government, if in fact I'm right about that. 
Yeah, that's right. The Social Democrats do have a slight edge over the Christian Democrats. In total, the Social Democrats are predicted to win 206 seats in the parliament. And the Christian Democrats, the two main Christian Democratic parties in the alliance, together have 196. But you need 368 seats to get a majority in parliament. And so you're right, a coalition government is inevitable. There is essentially two possibilities that exist. The Social Democratic Party could form an alliance with the Green Party, which is, you know, also essentially a center-left party, but with a little bit more of a focus on the environment and the climate. And the Free Democratic Party, which is, you know, you can think about it, I think a little bit like a libertarian party, essentially. They really heavily emphasize their opposition to any social spending that benefits the working class, still sort of present themselves as a quote-unquote centrist force. That seems to be the most likely coalition right now. It's still possible for the Christian Democrats to form an alliance with the Green Party and the Free Democratic Party, although that's considered to be a little bit less likely. It's theoretically possible that the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats, the two main parties, the center left and the center right, could decide to form a coalition again. I mean, that's how Germany's been governed for the last, you know, several years. But that is, well, neither party has expressed interest in that, essentially. So this is essentially what we're looking at. Yeah, Angela Merkel's, you know, time as leader of the country, very, very long time as leader of the country, the longest leader in German history is over. And so, you know, a lot of people are thinking about what does this mean for international politics and for European politics? Well, one of the main things that the French President Emmanuel Macron has been talking about and with increasing intensity over the last couple weeks based on what happened in Afghanistan and what happened with the submarine deal that France had with Australia but was canceled. What he's talking about is European, quote unquote, strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy, meaning that rather than being purely a junior partner of the United States, kind of an imperialist sidekick to the United States, that the European imperialist powers would operate more independently, would build out their military, would develop their own foreign policy to benefit their own capitalist ruling class in a way that's you know not completely antagonistic to the United States, but is not totally subservient to the United States either. The European Union is de facto led by France and Germany now that the UK has exited. And so whether or not the new German government that emerges and that coalition building process could potentially take months, but when it does emerge, will that new German government be open to this idea of European strategic autonomy, imperialist strategic autonomy? That remains to be seen. The Social Democratic Party leader Olaf Scholz is considered to be pro-United States. I mean, so is the leader of the Christian Democrats. But, you know, we can never be totally sure how this will play out. Also, the Free Democratic Party, this sort of semi-libertarian party, is expected to insist on controlling the finance ministry. That's important because they would be in a position to block more ambitious European Union financial policies to essentially borrow more to benefit the poorer members of the European Union, which is, you know, one of the biggest fault lines really in the EU right now. Germany is important for a number of reasons. It's the most, well, it's the most advanced economy in the European Union. It's the largest economy. It's a central player in NATO. It also has, well, it has bad relations with the Russian government, but also really has 
in economic interdependence with Russia. And Walter, over the past century, of course, Germany's politics have gone through many, many changes since the end of World War I, the imposition of the Versailles Accords, meaning the sanctions on Germany, ultimately the rise of fascism and the victory of Hitler in 1933, the German invasion of the Soviet Union slash Russia in 1941. When you think about this long, complicated history, one can also see that if it were to become a truly independent country, independent from U.S. imperialism, and of course, U.S. troops still occupied Germany, but its natural trade and perhaps political partner would be more to the East rather than to the West. Anyway, what do you think about that? Yeah, and there is some precedent for that. I mean, for a period during the Cold War, the West German government pursued a policy known as Ostpolitik, which is basically, you know, trying to improve relations with the East. Angela Merkel was considered to be maybe somewhat sympathetic to this general orientation, was opposed to maybe, you know, the most dramatic measures that were on the table to escalate tensions with Russia. But the quote unquote Atlanticists, meaning the people who are committed to a foreign policy vision where Germany is very, very tightly attached to the United States, to NATO, is firmly part of this sort of traditional Western imperialist bloc. They really have the upper hand, and Merkel's exit from the stage cements their dominance, I think, really, of the German foreign policy and military establishment. All right. Chief financial officer of China's largest privately held company, that would be Huawei, the technology company. I'm speaking of Meng Wanzhou. She was released from custody in Canada after a deal was struck with the United States, obviously between the United States and China. She was released. She went home. Canada had two of its citizens who had been arrested by China during the same time that she was incarcerated, and she was originally arrested in December 2018. Those two Canadians were also released, so it appeared to be a deal in exchange. Meng Wanzhou, just to remind people, was arrested when she landed at the Vancouver International Airport. Now, she lives part of the time in Canada. She also lives in China. She gets off a plane in Vancouver in December 2018, and the Canadian police arrest her on a warrant delivered by the United States. And on January 28th, 2019, about a month later, the U.S. Department of Justice announced charges against her for financial fraud. And what was her financial fraud? Again, she's arrested in Canada, in a third country. What was the fraud? That they say that in a PowerPoint presentation that she made to HSBC Bank when Huawei was attempting to get credit for a new line of production. In her PowerPoint presentation, she disguised the fact that Huawei also was doing business with Iran and that the business that Huawei, an independent company in China, was doing with Iran violated U.S. sanctions against Iran and by having failed to tell HSBC Bank about her dealings with Iran, she was committing an act of fraud against HSBC because HSBC unknowingly 
would be subjected to U.S. sanctions as well. I mean, when you think about the ludicrous character of this case and the chief financial officer of a major, the largest Chinese corporation arrested in a third country when she gets off the airport. Anyway, it was an incredible injustice. We're glad she's back. China is celebrating. But obviously, the Biden administration decided to terminate the prosecution that was started under the Trump administration. And I want to play two audio clips, if we could. One is Biden speaking before the United Nations. Like all heads of state, he has an opportunity to speak in the September is when the UN General Assembly starts and heads of state come there and frequently speak or they have their foreign minister come and speak. I want to play a short clip about what Joe Biden actually said. And this comes in the same week that he had a very long 90-minute call with Chinese President Xi Jinping because I want to assess what actually is going on here, why Meng was finally released, why she was sent back to Canada. And I want to play that audio clip. And then I want to play, I think we have an audio clip from Chinese TV, National Television Network about what it was like when she returned. Let's hear Joe Biden first, though. All the major powers of the world have a duty, in my view, to carefully manage their relationships. So they do not tip from responsible competition to conflict. The United States will compete and will compete vigorously and lead with our values and our strength. We'll stand up for our allies and our friends and oppose attempts by stronger countries to dominate weaker ones, whether through changes to territory by force, economic coercion, technical exploitation, or disinformation. But we're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. Well, that's Joe Biden. It's kind of a funny speech when you think about we won't tolerate other countries using economic coercion or territorial acquisitions. No, only the U.S. arrogates to itself the right to do that. I mean, (laughs) one third of the world is under economic coercion by U.S. sanctions. But regardless of the fact that his comments are dripping with hypocrisy, Biden is clearly differentiating himself from others in the U.S. government. And I'm thinking also very probably of his national security advisor and his secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, who from the beginning have been part of the faction within the Biden White House that has been leading the charge against China. I think Biden's call to Xi Jinping is also signaling that Biden is not quite the same. It's not that they have a difference in principle. Biden, like the others, want to bring China down. They want to stop China. They would prefer to overthrow the government in China. I mean, Biden is no different there. But tactically, he's making a bit of a shift, and he's trying to de-escalate tensions. And clearly, the release of Meng Wanzhou is a signal from the Biden administration to the Chinese government that they want to put the brakes on. Maybe not put them on, but tap them a little bit so that the speed with which the escalating crisis between the U.S. and China slows even by a little bit. I want to play another clip from, I believe it's from Canadian TV. This is how Meng Wanzhou was greeted when she arrived in Beijing. 
We're just getting visuals right now of Meng Wanzhou waving to the crowds as she is uh, departing the plane that took her from Vancouver to Beijing. She's waving at everybody. There are crowds of people waving flags, welcoming her back home. They've rolled out the red carpet, anticipating her arrival back home. This has also been a three-year ordeal where she was on house arrest in Vancouver for the past three years. There she is waving. They're presenting her with presents as she arrives back home. Of course, everybody with their safety protocols and their masks to make sure everybody's safe. Um, and she looks very happy to be back on her home <laughs> soil. Yeah. Anyway, it's a big deal for people in China and for Chinese Americans and for Chinese people living outside of China. I mean, her arrest is so gross, so grotesque, so so ludicrous. And this is, even if it's a small victory, it's not an unimportant one for China. Let's go on real quick to another story. You know, we're not yet exactly burning books, Esther. We're banning books. And under the rubric of fighting critical race theory, this sort of made up sort of platform in terms of the right wing, there's an effort to deprive the children of the United States from learning not just about what might be called black history, but U.S. history, which includes the super oppression of black people. It includes slavery. It includes Jim Crow. It includes apartheid. All of it is now being challenged by the right wing. Anyway, let's just talk real quick about that and, and the fight back against that. Right. Well, one fight back is occurring during this week. This is actually Banned Books Week. And authors are stepping up to highlight how so many politicians like on the right around the country are either banning books or attempting to ban books and particularly books that are anti-racist books about black history under the guise, as you mentioned, of opposing so-called critical race theory, which none of these books are about. Right. And typically these books are just stating facts about black history. And as we've discussed on the show, much of the censoring on the right is in response to the New York Times 1619 project, which retells the story of the origin and the development of the United States from the perspective of the enslavement of African people, using that as a jumping off point to talk about really how this country began. And that magazine project has actually evolved into many book projects and other types of media that are being distributed now. And there are even some districts that are not just looking at the 1619 project, but they're banning books about children's books about like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks. And according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, quote, Republicans have introduced bills in more than half of the states to restrict the teaching of what they regard to be critical race theory. 11 states have enacted bans. The language of these measures, while varying slightly from state to state, is drawn from a template provided by the Trump administration's 2020 executive order banning federal agencies from engaging in anti-racism training. Most of the debate around these measures has focused on the merits of the New York Times 1619 project, end quote. And creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's a editor of the New York Times Magazine, you know, says these efforts are really 
they're more than just about her project. And, and she says they're trying to control the collective memory of the country. She appeared on CNN on Sunday on the program, Reliable Sources, you know, talking about what it means in this moment, you know, which she says is very dangerous, you know, to have politicians ban works of journalism and because of what they say about history and because they think that the truth about history makes them uncomfortable or they claim will make white children uncomfortable. I think we have a clip of Nicole Hannah-Jones speaking on CNN on Sunday. I, I don't know. I, I think that this is a, a, a particularly dangerous moment because there's one thing to um, have right-wing media saying they don't dis- they don't like the 1619 Project, they don't agree with the 1619 Project, but it's quite something else to have uh, politicians from state legislators down to school boards actually making uh, prohibitions against teaching a work of American journalism or really any of these other texts. The fact that we are all talking about uh, this, this fake controversy called critical race theory really speaks to how successful uh, the the public uh, propaganda campaign has been. I don't think it's just about, you know, scared white parents. It's about a politician savvily stoking racial resentment in response, Mm. I think, to the global protest last year um, in order to divide Americans from each other. And they're being quite successful. Uh, We're not just seeing bans on uh, the 1619 Project. We're, we're seeing parents who are saying, we don't think you should teach the story of Ruby Bridges um, because that makes white children feel bad. We're seeing uh, bans against the teaching of Martin Luther King's works, right? So this is actually uh, trying to control the um, collective memory of this country and trying to say, mm-hmm. we're just going to purge. Yeah. You know, I was in Rehoboth at the beach. I went there for two days at the end of summer and I stopped and got some food at this little dive restaurant. And the woman who was the chief waiter there came up and I was talking to her and she said, well, the season's ending. I'm going back to Virginia. I'm a teacher. She said, but, you know, everything is going to hell in the country. And it's because of this whole critical race theory. And then she said, and we never had a racial problem. She's in Virginia. We never had a racial problem where I am in Virginia. Never. And then she's talked about how she had an African-American teacher like when she was eight years old and she really liked him. And I was thinking like, what the hell? Here's a woman who's like working her ass off, serving tables, working probably very, very long shift, doing it for extra income. She's teaching school to kids. All she wanted to talk about was critical race theory right? and how unjust it was. And in other words, it's really planting roots in a part of the population that's listening to the Republicans or to right-wing propaganda. Right. I think that this goes back to something we said earlier. The right is miles ahead in terms of creating their messaging machine, pretty much of lies and distortion. And they really have a far reach and the left is squashed by the Democratic Party in terms of getting out any messaging that would be progressive, that people could really latch on to that is meaningful for their lives. <laughs> That's the whole message of really the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah. And for us, for us here at the Socialist Program, for independent socialists who are not Democrats, We have to make our own media stronger and stronger. We have to build our movement. We can do it. We know we can do it. We saw in the last year how a mass movement 
is waiting to happen once again. Anyway, let's go on to another story. This is right after the Supreme Court basically embraced the Texas decision to essentially end abortion rights for women and girls in Texas, a state with 30 million people. And by the way, the state of Oklahoma and other nearby states with Texas, medical practices that perform abortions are having double and triple the numbers. People who have at least enough money to travel from Texas to Oklahoma or nearby states are doing that. But of course, many poor and working class women, especially younger women or teenage girls are not going to be able to do that. Terrible. Well, here's the headline from the Washington Post. I'm going to do a series of sort of short things. This is our show called In the News. Well, this is about in the newspaper. Supreme Court observers see trouble ahead as public approval of justices erodes. The Supreme Court's approval rating is plummeting. Its critics are more caustic and justices are feeling compelled to plead the case to the public that they are judicial philosophers, not politicians in robes. Oh, okay. That's all BS. That's exactly what they are. They are politicians in robes. Anyway, check that story out. Also in the newspapers, here's another headline. UK to offer more than 10,000 foreign workers temporary visas to tackle supply chain crisis. Up to 10,500 lorry drivers and poultry workers are to be offered temporary UK visas in an attempt to avoid supply chain disruptions ahead of Christmas, the Boris Johnson government said in a statement. Now, according to the statement, there are so many shortages piling up, and a big part of it is that with Brexit, a number of foreign-born workers either left or did not come back to the UK, and as a consequence, it's a major developing economic crisis in Britain. Again, demonizing immigrant labor works for opportunist politicians, but it doesn't solve any economic problems for the working class. Let's turn to another quick news item. There was a bit of a recall in the Icelandic vote, Nicole. And also the headline, of course, was with the recount, a number of the young women who seem to have become, who seem to have been elected to parliament were not elected. So what appeared to be a majority of women in the Iceland parliament is not. There are still way more women proportionally in Iceland than, say, in the United States. But another part of the story is that only three countries in the entire world have majority women in parliament. And just over a quarter of legislators globally are women. The three countries that have more women than men in parliament might surprise you. They're not in Europe. As you said, even with 48% in Iceland after the recount, the 48% of Icelandic legislators being women, that's the highest in Europe, still ahead of Sweden, Finland, all the other sort of countries you think of as progressive. But yeah, only three countries have more women than men in parliament, and they are Rwanda, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Wow. All right, Walter, in the newspapers, I don't know why... This isn't in all the newspapers right now, but it's the Alabama miner strike. It's been going on for some time. Yeah, that's right. The workers at Warrior Met Coal have been on strike for months. They're fighting a, a very intense battle with the corporation as well as BlackRock, the financial 
investment firm that owns a substantial stake of Warrior Met Coal. Management has used all sorts of illegal methods, violence against strikers, vehicular attack against strikers, peacefully walking the picket lines. I'm also seeing something in on Alabama.com. The title is Alabama Troopers Escort Workers Past Striking Coal Miners Like They're Working for the Company, Union Says. So yeah, I mean, the Highway Patrol Division in Alabama has been effectively functioning as the company's private security force, escorting strike breakers in to try to break the unity of the workers there. So this battle is ongoing. It's a very, very important struggle for workers everywhere, for the labor movement, and, and anybody who cares about justice. Yeah. And the miners, when the company seemed to be going bankrupt, made huge concessions, the wage increases, their health care. They took it all, and the union agreed to it to keep the mine working Now the mine's making mega profits, and surprise, surprise, the bosses don't want to change the arrangement. So that's what this strike is all about. Esther, let's go to Missouri. Of course, this is a short news item, but it's a big story. Yeah, so the FBI has opened an investigation into police in Missouri allowing a dog to repeatedly bite a man and maul him while arresting him. And so this is captured on video. And so officers were called to a report that a man had broken into a business and witnesses said that the man appeared to be, you know, high or whatever, but he wasn't armed or anything. So they said that they warned him the dog would be used if he continued to resist arrest. And they allowed him to bite his foot and then bite his leg. And the man was treated at a local hospital and released. And so the fact that the FBI is actually investigating this is a real difference from what would happen typically under the Trump administration. The Department of Justice has been kind of reactivated to look at policing. And I should say just as a real quick matter that, you know, what we did cover in part, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was just kind of allowed to die last week. There was no agreement reached between Senate Republicans, Cory Booker, and negotiating on the side of Democrats, along with, I think, Tim Scott on the side of Republicans, but they didn't come to any agreement. And so that legislation was allowed to die. And that was the biggest effort made to respond to the massive uprising against racism last year after the murder of George Floyd. Let's turn to another quick story in the newspapers. A young student from Wisconsin. Wow, this one's amazing. Go ahead, Nicole. A high school student, Amia Cahoon, took a spring break trip to Florida. She's from Wisconsin. They went as a part of the band, the high school band. They returned, all of the students returned to Wisconsin on March 15th, earlier than planned because of the coronavirus outbreak. And she posted on Instagram that she thought she had been infected She had been to hospitals, and although she tested negative, her daughters thought she probably had had it earlier. And then another post she posted on Instagram, she's wearing a mask and says she's beaten COVID, and she urges other people to stay safe. Again, this was March 2020, so right at the beginning of the pandemic here in the United States. So I'm sure she was very surprised a couple of days later when a Marquette County Sheriff's Sergeant, Cameron Klump, came to her house and said that the sheriff of the county, Joseph Conrath, had ordered that her Instagram post be taken down 
because he didn't believe there were any confirmed cases of COVID in the county. She was threatened with jail by the sheriff's sergeant. Earlier in the day, the school had also attacked her. They had notified parents that there was, quote unquote, no truth to rumors that a student had gotten COVID during the trip. And the administrator called the post, quote, a foolish means to get attention and the source of the rumor has been addressed, unquote. I mean, just really attacking her. But she was threatened with jail. She since then sued the sheriff And a judge just ruled in her favor this week saying, quote, the First Amendment is not a game setting for the government to toggle off and on. It applies in times of tranquility and times of strife, unquote. Just a disgusting story that a sheriff would send a sergeant to a high school student's house to demand that she take posts down off of Instagram. Remember that Chinese scientist in Wuhan who in the first days of COVID thought maybe there would be a new SARS-type-like outbreak, and he sent some messages to people by text message, and local government authorities in Wuhan saw it and thought he was like being an alarmist, and they went and talked to him, and they told him to take it down. They didn't threaten him with jail, and he went back to work and actually tragically died from COVID while he was treating patients. He was an eye doctor. But remember how that story was over and over and over again, showing how the Chinese suppressed yes. discussion about COVID? Well, here's this girl mm-hmm. comes back in March 2020 from Florida and says, I have COVID. And they threatened to send her to jail because she told her classmates about it on Instagram. Let's go to another quick story. One must only read the first paragraph Esther, and maybe we can, of this article about surveillance protocols of remote workers during the pandemic are here to stay. Well, that first paragraph says that when Kerry Krutchik, an attorney for 34 years, was hired this spring for one of the legal field's fastest growing jobs, she expected to review case files at a pandemic safe distance from the comfort of her Ohio home. Then she received a laptop in the mail with her instructions. To get paid, she'd have to comply with a company-mandated facial recognition system for every minute of her contract. If she looked away for too many seconds or shifted in her chair, she'd have to scan her face back in from three separate angles, a process she ended up doing several times a day. So this article is just talking about the increase in this type of surveillance technology during the pandemic. So many people are working at home. And this article in the Washington Post says that the spread of the Delta variant has kept many of America's office employees from working from home and fueled a rise in this type of surveillance technology. So very creepy, very creepy. And it's here to stay. Yes. (laughs) I think the article says it's likely that this is what bosses, what the employers are likely to do in the future. Now that COVID deniers will say, see, that's why this is all a big conspiracy, because the capitalists will take advantage of it to increase surveillance. They'll digitize our vaccination cards. Well, the same right-wing medical organizations who are putting out some of this like false propaganda about the vaccines or about treatment protocols. They're really right-wing organizations that were formed a long time ago to stop a possible national health plan from being implemented. So these same COVID deniers, what they're doing is they're taking every way that the capitalist government has mismanaged it or the way the capitalists take advantage of it to say, see, this is just some big giant conspiracy. When Wouldn't it be better to say, in a class society 
where capitalism rules and the capitalists are dominant, that even in a healthcare crisis, they will take advantage of it. It doesn't mean that COVID isn't real. It doesn't mean that vaccines are unsafe. It doesn't mean you shouldn't wear a mask. It just means that we have to get rid of the capitalist class, not get rid of common sense health policy protocols. Anyway, final story. Of course, we end every show with the big stories on Liberation News. Walter, you are the editor. Yes, at liberationnews.org, you can find our link to sign up for the newsletter at the top and check back there every day for new updates about national, international, and local stories. A few to highlight today. One is titled, Congress lets racist cops off the hook as police reform talks end in failure. This goes over the negotiations that have been stalled and now officially called off to meet the demands of the people expressed so clearly in last summer's uprising, which brought millions and millions of people into the streets in the United States and around the world. It talks about what can be done next. There's also an interesting article titled Los Angeles Long Beach Protests Demand George W. Bush's Arrest for War Crimes. We covered the disruption of George W. Bush's speech by Iraq War veteran and anti-war organizer Mike Preisner. This article gives you the inside scoop on how that action was organized. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled Supporters Rally in D.C. to Greet Peruvian President Pedro Castillo. Pedro Castillo is the newly elected left-wing working-class president of Peru. He was traveling to the United States recently, and people who supported his government's measures and the promise of his government rallied to support him. You can find out more details here. Supporters rally in D.C. to greet Peruvian President Pedro Castillo. And you can find all of these articles and more on liberationnews.org. All right. That's all the time we have. We'll be back tomorrow with our segment with Richard Wolf, the biggest stories on the economy. Again, Nicole, let's remind people about the monthly seminar. Yes, the monthly seminar for September is this Wednesday, tomorrow. That's September 29th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. And we'll be talking about tactics and strategies for building an anti-war, social justice, and socialist movement in this country. And we'll take questions beforehand and live as we go. And that seminar is for patrons only. If you're not a patron yet, help support this show by becoming a subscriber. If you do so today or tomorrow, you can join us Wednesday night in our monthly seminar. And of course, we'll be back on Thursday with our regular show called The Real Story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.